Welcome back to another episode of EMIGCAST. This is going to be a great episode for everyone today. Today's topic, sepsis. We will discuss workups, guidelines, pitfalls, and treatments with Dr. Ran, a critical care fellow here at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Whether you're a student, resident, or attending, I think you're going to find something valuable to take away from today's episode. But before we get started, I just wanted to tell everyone how much we appreciate your listenership here at EMIGCAST. We work on bringing you relevant content month in and month out. And if you have any topics that you'd like to hear discussed here on EMIGCAST, please do so by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website. If you enjoy our content here on EMIGCAST, please share our website with your friends and colleagues so they know about it as well. So without further delay, let's get this episode underway. Today, I'm here with Dr. Ran, and we're going to talk a little bit about sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Ran. Glad to be on the show. Well, for starters, can you give us a little idea about yourself and tell our listeners why you have an interest in sepsis? Well, I guess I'm a critical care fellow at OHSU. I also did my emergency medicine residency at OHSU. I've been interested in sepsis because in critical care, it's bread and butter. A lot of sick people get septic, and sepsis can make people really sick, and I have an interest in taking care of sick people. Sounds good. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is a patient that I had the other day. I had this 56-year-old lady. She had a kind of an early history of onset dementia. They found her in her house, and she was non-responsive. When I got to her, she was febrile to 103. She was a little bit tachypnic and tachycardic. Her clothes were stained in urine, and I was pretty sure this lady had sepsis. What do you think? Does this sound like a patient that might have sepsis to you? Yeah, the way you're describing this patient certainly would sound like that. The vitals that you give me certainly would allude to the fact that she has some sort of inflammatory response going on. And until you have a better handle of her, the rest of her exam, you should assume that it's sepsis until proven otherwise. She also has, more importantly, evidence of end organ dysfunction the biggest of which is her profound mental status that would cause her to urinate on herself and be passed out on the floor, which is certainly not normal. So all of that suggests that she has some sort of inflammatory response leading to such a perturbation in her physiologic state that her brain isn't getting perfused and she's densely altered. So yeah, the way I looked at it is I had three out of the four SERS criteria. And, you know, a lot of us have heard about SERS, and there's also that new criteria out there called QSOFA. As a student, how do I really know what to use at this point? I think the SERS criteria is still something you should fall back on. It was really meant and developed as a guide to help people, especially beginners, identify sepsis by looking at the vital signs. Having said that, though, you know, you need the SERS criteria plus a suspected infection to truly call it a sepsis. Because... As you can imagine, someone running a marathon is going to have three out of the four SERS criteria quite easily. The QSOFA is also an interesting literature that just got published in February. They try to redefine sepsis, really focusing on organ dysfunction. 
For your purposes though, in, especially in the emergency department, for you to identify sepsis to begin with, I would still stick with SIRS. After you've identified and called someone sepsis, you can then apply QSOFA to try and risk categorize this patient in terms of high risk mortality, low risk mortality, intermediate risk mortality. So that's, that's how I would see it. So you mentioned somebody that just ran a marathon might meet the SIRS criteria. Is what you're trying to say that the inflammatory response that we see with the SIRS criteria is actually an appropriate response to see? Yeah, it certainly is. Your body is adapted to have certain physiologic changes in response to stress. So tachycardia, even fever in the setting of an infection might actually be protective. So having someone have two, three, four out of the SIRS criteria isn't per se a bad thing. More and more, the studies would show that when the inflammatory response becomes excessive, and in fact, maybe it has nothing to do with purely the inflammatory response, but actually the organ dysfunction response to sepsis, then the mortality rate starts to go up. So what I'm hearing you saying is that SIRS really still has a role. And even though we kind of have this new paper out on QSOFA that has to do with increased chance for mortality, I should really still be using SIRS in the ED as a student. I think you should. I mean, even the sepsis 3.0 papers, if you read it in more detail, they describe that SIRS is actually better than the SOFA score in the ED and outside of the ICU. The QSOFA might outperform SIRS a little bit in terms of predicting mortality, but those criteria all make sense, right? I mean, they're just describing hypotension, which all of us will raise an eyebrow to, profound alterations in mental status, all of us will also raise an eyebrow to, and tachypnea, which is another vital sign we're all paying attention to. So as a student, one of the things that we're asked to do right away is determine whether a patient is sick or not sick. And if we really think the patient is sick, we need to come get a resident or attending. What should I look for right away to determine sick or not sick in these type of patients? That is a very good question. And it's a question that's hard to just answer because this sick or not sick question it really involves all of our faculties, what the patient looks like, what their vital signs are, what the overall smell, what the gestalt is, and that's really hard to put on paper. Having said all that, let me try and boil it down to a more systematic approach. I think for most beginners, they tend to undervalue the importance of vital signs. So I want you to be cognizant when you walk into a room before you even say hi to a patient, make note of a patient's vital signs because vital signs are vital. And any perturbations in the vital sign should already raise the hairs on the back of your neck. Then you can begin your conversations because one of the things that aren't part of the vital signs that really should be is their degree of mental status. And so really quickly by talking to the patient, you want to quickly assess how alert they are, their orientation, and in general, their GCS score. The combination of vital signs and their GCS should be the very first things that clue you into something that's wrong. And therefore, if you approach a resident or intending, you can say, I think this person's sick because of these alterations in vital signs and this person's GCS. And it's kind of a universal language in that way. And you'll be able to easily convey your concerns just with that one sentence. So are there any little things that maybe I could pick up on? Like, should I be kind of looking at their facial expressions? Should I check their skin? Or are there any little things that maybe with their mental status that will clue me in that this is a sicker patient than maybe somebody else? There definitely are such clues. But again, everything is just so heterogeneous that it will be very patient specific. The expressions on one's face can often tell you how 
panicked they are. It's hard to describe, but some people are actually looking at facial recognition software to better characterize whether patients are going to be more sick than others. And some of the preliminary data they've released is that the amount of white of the person's eyes that are showing can be predictive of how much in distress they are. And it kind of makes sense, right? Someone who's in air hunger, they frequently have that look in their eyes where they're basically starving of oxygen and they're breathing harder than normal, their eyes are wide open, and there's a panic quality to their face. Again, very hard to describe or quantify on paper, but all the same very important clues that someone is in extremis. What about skin? What do you think the skin can tell us by looking at it? You know, I think skin is one of the more important physical exam findings in a septic patient. Uh, again, one of those things that we aren't able to quantify is the degree of modeling in one skin, the temperature of the periphery versus the core, and all of these things, especially if we're going to talk about sepsis management, will actually help you guide the sepsis management. The key thing you want to know about sepsis and shock in general is shock is defined as decreased perfusion. And what is perfusion but the trickling of blood through tissues? Unfortunately, we have no way of objectively measuring that. Blood pressure is only a surrogate. Even echo parameters are only a surrogate. The skin is in a unique position where it's on the outside surface and you can see it. And modeling can be a sign of decreased perfusion to the skin. And the change in temperature from periphery to core is also a great sign of decreased perfusion as well. So that was going to be my next question. Septic patients can often progress to septic shock. So in septic shock, how would we really define that? You mentioned tissue perfusion. Is there anything else that I should be looking for to know that this patient could possibly be in septic shock? Septic shock, right as of now, defined by the sepsis 2.0 and sepsis 3.0 guidelines, is that after fluid resuscitation, the patient remains hypotensive, defined as a MAP less than 65, or a drop greater than 40 points from their baseline blood pressure if they're hypertensive to begin with, plus signs of end organ hypoperfusion, as evidenced by an increase in lactate or signs of end organ hypoperfusion. And so the lactate is sometimes a good clue. If the lactate is high in the setting of hypotension, that really solidifies your diagnosis of shock. If they're hypotensive and they have a new AKI, new altered mental status, new shock liver and transaminitis, you can make the argument that this person is also in shock and you should resuscitate them aggressively. Speaking of resuscitation, one of the things that we see people use a lot nowadays is ultrasound, and they use it to kind of determine whether or not a patient has a certain fluid status. Do you think ultrasound plays any role in septic shock or with a patient who has sepsis? I think ultrasound plays an immense role in shock in general to help you understand the physiologic state behind the shock. The one thing I don't like is the term septic shock because truthfully sepsis can cause every type of shock right if you have sepsis that leads to ARDS you're going to have RV failure a shock that looks very much like a massive PE septic shock can also be distributive shock which causes vasodilation and no matter how much fluids you give them they're not going to become normotensive septic shock can cause cardiogenic shock a sudden reduction from their EF of a baseline of 75% down to 10% and you'd have to treat that very differently as well so septic shock and sepsis in general are umbrella terms. And to truly understand how to best manage their shock state, you should use the ultrasound to help you figure out what their preload status is, what their RV looks like, what their LV looks like, 
and also through a surrogate of all combination of these two things, understand their vasomotor tone. The thing about ultrasound though is everybody's using it for one thing and one thing only right now, which is to look at the IVC. And from what I just described to you, you can understand how just looking at the IVC will be very limited or paint a very limited picture in terms of the overall physiology of a septic patient. So yeah, I've definitely heard there's some controversy around whether or not just looking at the IVC is appropriate. For the purpose of a hypotensive patient though, what other things could we look at with the ultrasound to maybe rule out that there's not an additional cause of their hypotension? I would definitely put the probe on their heart. And when you're looking at their heart, you ask the same series of questions you ask of anybody in shock. Do they have signs of RV failure? Like, do they have signs of massive pulmonary artery pressures? Do they also have signs of LV dysfunction? Lastly, when you get more and more advanced with echoes, what you're going to start to realize is that fluid responsiveness has nothing to do with the amount of blood in your IVC. Fluid responsiveness has everything to do with whether or not your left ventricle can take the blood from your venous circuit and give it potential energy into your arterial circuit. And so as you get more advanced with ultrasound and you get better with volume time integral measurements, you can actually document an increase or possibly no change in the stroke volume when you fluid challenge them or lift up their legs as some of the newer literature would suggest. Yeah, can you tell me about that? I've heard that there's maybe some tests that you can do by lifting up your legs. Could you explain that a little bit more, how we would use that to assess for volume status or to assess for fluid responsiveness? Yeah, the maneuver is very simple. The maneuver is you have the patient sitting up with their head up at 45 degrees and legs flat. Then you lay their head down and you lift their legs up by 45 degrees, and this will simulate an autobolus of 500 cc's of blood. What's not simple is, well, what parameter are you looking for to judge responsiveness? Because you could do this maneuver on everybody. Do I look at the heart rate? Do I look at the blood pressure? Frequently making such a change, especially if the patient is uncomfortable, might cause them to be a little bit more uncomfortable. And you might see a positive response, which really wasn't that positive. And so a lot of newer technologies are looking at bioimpedance monitoring. And if you're good with the ultrasound and you can figure out what they're estimate their stroke volume either by looking at their aortic outflow tract or their carotids, you can try and measure to see if there's any increase in stroke volume after such a challenge. Having said all of that though, these maneuvers might not be that helpful in the ER. In the ER, you can presume that these patients are volume down and it's probably safe to just straight up bolus them with two liters of fluid and see how they respond to their vital signs. These maneuvers are going to be after all these boluses have gone in and you're trying to figure out, mm, can this patient tolerate some more or maybe not? So you would recommend just starting empirically, giving them a bolus of fluids, or is there anything else that we should think about or how would we move forward with fluids once we determine that we need to give them? Fluids in general is probably not a bad idea in sepsis. However, there are different presentations and different populations that might not benefit from fluids and might be harmed by them. So I would be cautious in giving fluids to anyone who's in respiratory distress if you haven't already supported their oxygenation and ventilation appropriately. Fluids, especially in the setting of a leaky capillary because of pneumonia or ARDS, can really put them over the edge in terms of worsening your hypoxemic and hypercarbic respiratory failure. And obviously having a glance at the patient's past medical history where they admitted four times this year for heart failure, maybe these patients you don't want to give much fluids to. 
we have a patient that we think has sepsis. So I imagine that we're going to do a chest x-ray, maybe look if they have some sort of infection in their, their lungs. What other things should we do to look for a source of infection in these patients? That is a really good question. The adage, and some people still practice this way, is you have a fever? Well, let's pan culture you. Get blood cultures, x-rays, urine, urine cultures. And the truth of it is that's probably falling more and more out of favor. When you identify somebody who might have sepsis based on their vital signs, you want to try and figure out the source. And you want to perform the best and most thorough physical exam findings for sepsis as you can. And what that means is looking for a potential source by examining their skin to make sure they don't have cellulitis, listening to their lungs or asking about productive coughing and shortness breath to search for a pulmonary source, asking for signs of cystitis or flank pain to think about your urinary tract, thinking about the GI tract, asking about diarrhea, palpating the stomach to look for intra-abdominal abscesses, doing a range of motion tests on their neck, doing a neuro exam to think about CNS infections, and also palpating all of their bones, moving all of their joints, thinking about osteomyelitis, thinking about joint infections. You really want to be very thorough. And the other thing that everybody misses is intraoral infections, asking about their teeth, looking inside their mouth, palpating their neck to make sure they don't have a deep neck space infection. For patients that can talk to you and you can get a decent history and physical, you probably don't even have to do the x-ray. You probably don't have to get the urine culture. You really try and rely on your exam to figure out the source. Having said that, though, there are patients, like the first example you gave me, where they're so altered and encephalopathic, you have no idea where it is. And in that case, because you're going to start them on empiric antibiotics to begin with, you might as well culture everything to have the data come back uncorrupted by the administration of prompt antibiotics. Thanks for mentioning antibiotics, because one of my questions was, how do I know when to start antibiotics? Should I start them right away? You did mention try to get blood cultures first, but does every patient need to be started on broad-spectrum antibiotics each time? Not every patient. And again, again, sepsis, such an umbrella term. I will say this, though. If your patient is in septic shock, you should probably start antibiotics immediately, ideally within the first three hours. If you could get it in within the first hour, kudos to you, because the literature on antibiotics and timing is really shown to be a benefit only in the setting of septic shock. The empiric antibiotics is getting easier and easier, and, and you might see this on your rotation. You might just say, oh my God, this ED doctors, all they do is prescribe vancozin, vancozin, right? Just rolls off the tongue. But the truth of it is, if you can get a history, you really want to think about this, right? Because if it's a CNS infection, zosin does not penetrate the CNS, and you'll be doing them no justice. Even if you got antibiotics in within 10 minutes, if you pick the wrong one. So if you have someone who can talk to you, they're not necessarily in septic shock, you can try and figure out the source. It might be more prudent to wait, finish your exam, get your data, and then treat the appropriate source because you will get better results and antibiotic stewardship. Okay, so let's move on and say that I'm still working with this septic patient and we're investigating a source of infection and they're hypotensive, we've started fluids, but they're really not responding to the fluids very well. How do I know when to start pressors and which one should I start first if they're not responding? That's a really good question. The first thing you want to know about the fluids is, is it going in fast enough? One of the most common errors with fluid resuscitation is that it's tempting just to put these on a pump, 
like a machine pump, like we do for all of our medications, but that delivers fluids at a very slow rate. You really want a bolus fluids. When you see a hypotensive patient, go into resuscitation mode, put it on a pressure bag, get a large bore IV, get multiple large bore IVs. You should have two liters of fluid pumped into these patients really within 15 to 20 minutes. So you will know in that time whether or not this patient needs vasopressors. And in true septic shock, most of these patients do. Like I said before, if they have poor vasomotor tone, if they have distributive shock, it doesn't matter how much fluids you give them, they will become hypotensive. And there's really not a good reason to leave them hypotensive. Being in the ED and waiting for them to go to the ICU is not a good reason. You should pick norepinephrine as your first vasopressor of choice. And you could give this through a peripheral line. It's safe to do so. If you don't have a peripheral line, you could drill an IO and to deliver it that way. There really is no excuse for leaving a patient hypotensive. Good. The other thing that I kind of wanted to know is, what is really the timeline of sepsis? Is sepsis something that's going to kill somebody in a few minutes or a few hours? Or what can I really expect from most of these patients? The things that kill patients follow a rather predictable order, in that the things that kill patients the quickest tend to be your ABCs, and that's why in emergency medicine, we emphasize that so much. Taking control of their oxygenation, ventilation, and supporting their circulatory parameters are most important. So sepsis can certainly kill someone in the matter of a few minutes if you can't control their oxygenation or ventilation. A lot of patients from sepsis who have compromised airways and you want to intubate them, they have a very high chance of coding on you when you intubate them because of their tenuous hemodynamic state to begin with. So that's the other thing to watch out for. Now the natural history of sepsis afterwards gets a little bit more complex. Some types of infections can kill patients in the matter of hours. Pseudomonas is probably the biggest one. If you see someone decompensating in front of your eyes from walking in the hospital to getting intubated a few hours later to be in cardiogenic shock, you should really think about pseudomonal infection and treat aggressively for that. The other types of infections don't tend to progress that fast. We're talking now in the order of days. And patients with sepsis or severe sepsis or septic shock that die from the order of days to weeks tend to die from the organ dysfunction, for which we don't have great solutions for at the moment except supportive therapy. So this is talking about the acute liver failure that happens, the thrombocytopenia that develops, DIC, the kidney failure that develops, and the profound encephalopathy that sometimes ensues from sepsis. I'm glad you mentioned encephalopathy. How does mental status play into this whole picture? And what sort of things do you do on a day-to-day basis when you're handling these patients to assess their mental status? Mental status is also a big umbrella term. We use the term altered mental status as just kind of a catch-all for anything that's abnormal. But the truth of it is, there are different flavors to abnormal. Someone coming in because they're meth intoxicated is altered in a completely different way than someone who's septic. To understand the natural history of encephalopathy and sepsis is very difficult because, again, it's such a heterogeneous disease. The pattern that I tend to see is that patients start to feel that something's off and they seem to be a little bit more anxious. But as the disease process progresses, it kind of evolves to a state of more delirious and then more somnolent and then densely encephalopathic. And what I mean by that is they don't seem to respond to anything. They almost sink into a stupor comatose state. 
One of my last questions is, once I've started treating this patient in the emergency department, and obviously they're very sick, how often should I go back and reassess the patient? And what should I be looking for each time that I go back? This is a question basically about how to juggle your time in the emergency department, which is its own skill that'll just take years of practice. I think the best tip I have for you is that in general, for any patient in the ED or the ICU, every time you enact an action, you want to have in your head what the monitoring output is, what the monitoring variable is. So for example, if you saw the septic patient and you've ordered two large bore IVs and two boluses of fluids to go in on pressure bag, you should expect that the bags of fluid will go in over the next 20 minutes. So in 20 minutes, you should literally set it on your clock. I'm going to swing by to check A, if the fluids have gotten in, and B, what the response to that is. And what you're looking at when you walk by is their blood pressure and their heart rate, because that's going to be your next decision branching point. In 20 minutes, I'm going to swing by and decide if they need vasopressors. And if you start somebody on vasopressors, you're going to want to swing by in 10 to 15 minutes to check that one, it's being hung and dripped in, and two, is it having an adequate response? So that's like the hemodynamic point of view. Say you just intubated somebody. Then after the intubation, you've ordered your chest x-ray. And depending at your institution, it might take them 10 minutes or 30 minutes to come by. And that's when you want to swing by to look at the x-ray to verify positioning. And then adjust the ventilator. And you might want to swing by every half an hour to ask for another ABG and consequently adjust the ventilator. So the period at which you come by comes by really depends on your concern for the patient as well as the interventions you made while you were at the patient's bed, and when you think that intervention will produce an effect because you want to be monitoring for said effect. It really sounds like you've gave us a comprehensive view of how to take care of a septic patient. What sort of things have you seen in the treatment of these type of patients that maybe could have been done a little bit better? Are there certain mistakes or pitfalls you've seen with students or young residents that really could have gave the patient a better outcome? I think the hard part is the ED is a very busy and chaotic place. And the other hard part is that sepsis, when it gets really severe, it gets really severe because the patient's ability to compensate and adapt to the physiologic stressor becomes overwhelmed. And before it gets overwhelmed, they actually look okay. They're not hypotensive. They might be a little bit tachycardic. But what you have to recognize in these folks is that when they go downhill, they go downhill very quickly. One of the things I see is that there can be a significant delay in the resuscitation of these patients. And the delay might be because it's busy in the ER, but a lot of times it's because we can't get good IV access and we're fidgeting around trying to do a central line, trying to do peripheral IVs, and it takes us half an hour to an hour before even getting any fluids or antibiotics hung for that reason. And that is a missed opportunity. If you have truly a septic patient and you need to resuscitate them, just put in an IO if you can't get an IV access. That IO will come out in 24 hours. You can start vasopressors and fluid resuscitations from that and really shorten your time from diagnosis to fluid and antibiotic administration. The other important tip is that when you leave the room and you think this patient is sick and they're septic, you really need to get your cultures quickly. And what that means is blood cultures, that's easy. But urine cultures, don't wait around for the patient to pee. They'll take all day. Just do a stray cat. If you think they have a CNS infection, put the LP kit beside the room and do the LP before you even go see another patient. Get 
fluid from every body cavity if you think there's a bad infection. That means getting a thoro right away, getting a para right away. Don't wait around because your medicine colleagues are not going to do that. And the last thing is source control. Probably the most important part of managing sepsis. If you think this person has a urinary infection, but they're really sick and you did an ultrasound or a CT scan and you see hydro, this is not a time to wait till morning to get someone to go and decompress that fluid. You need IR or urology to go and stent that or put in a nephrostomy tube because until you relieve that pressure and the pus behind the obstruction, this patient's not going to get better. Well, I think that's a great start for everybody that's looking to take care of some of their first septic patients or patients that might even present with septic shock. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Dr. Ran. No problem. I'd like to leave you today with a brief synopsis of what we heard from Dr. Ran. Remember, vitals are vital. Always start there and reassess the vitals. If you think a patient is septic, they deserve an amazing physical exam. You should look at every square inch of their skin. You should push on all the bones on their back, making sure it's not osteo. You really need to try your darndest to find a source because that will dictate your antibiotic choice. Start broad with your antibiotics, but remember, in the ED, it's easy just to start vanxosin for everything. Remember, zosin is not an appropriate antibiotic for a CNS infection. So having an intelligent thought process and picking the appropriate broad-spectrum antibiotics is very important. Also, the pressors element. Oftentimes, people have a fear of pressors because they know it's a really important medication, and a lot of people don't feel comfortable starting it with the peripheral IV. But leaving a patient in a hypotensive state is definitely no better than starting peripheral pressors. So start it early as soon as you recognize septic shock. And lastly, set yourself up for success if you need to do an LP, if you need to do a paracentesis or a thoracentesis. Get the equipment in the room and do it right away before you see any other patients. That will make sure that the patient gets the most appropriate workup in a timely manner. Thanks again for joining us, and please remember to share our website, emigcast.com, with your colleagues and friends, and look us up on Twitter, Facebook, if you have any comments or would like to suggest any ideas for future episodes. This is Nicholas Robbins, and we hope you join us again. This podcast represents only the views of its producers and does not represent the views of OHSU or any affiliated institutions. And while we make every effort to broadcast correct information, we're still learning and we ask that our audiences keep in mind that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, who we'd like to thank for their continuing support.